disagreed with this. I said, you know, it's only 10 o'clock, and if he gets done early enough, I can tell my story, too. <laughs> but they said no, so I won't be able to do that. But, you know, Al is, is a, a former editor of the Grapevine. All of you are familiar with the Grapevine. He said he retired some years ago, and the only thing I learned about him was that he used to take a lot of geographical tours, looking for help, you know. And one time he was traveling in Africa, and he was captured by cannibals. Now, you can see he got loose all right, but it's kind of difficult for a while, and he was in the pot, and they had the fire going, and things were getting pretty steamy. And the natives were dancing around, and one of them finally stopped and looked at him. Said, what do you do in real life? He said, I'm an editor. The native danced around again, and the next time he came around, he said, well, tomorrow you'll be editor-in-chief. <laughs> uh, so we're that bad when I'll give you Alice. <laughs> And first, let me thank the committee for this marvelous weekend and for the privilege of being here. Uh, I would like to stay a few more days because I've just now figured out how to work all those electrical switches in my room up there. And I'd like to have a couple of days more to play with them for a while. But I was very disappointed that they did not have one of those paper strips across the john. Because uh, I, I like to slide them off without breaking them. <laughs> and then put them back the next morning. <laughs> and after three or four days, the maids begin to look at you kind of funny. Besides being an editor, uh, a pretty good drunk and a rather typical alcoholic. I thought I was unique, as I'm sure you did, uh, and I had to get into AA to find out that uh, what I did was just garden variety stuff. Uh, I spent a good deal of my early years right across the, not across the river, but in the state across the river. Uh, played high school basketball over there and have very, very fond memories of the state of Indiana. But I left there long before I was uh, in any trouble with the booze, long before I started to drink, as a matter of fact, and uh, moved down east where uh, things were a little more sophisticated and where the booze began to flow. I'm a product of uh, Prohibition. I started drinking early in the days of Prohibition and had a wonderful time. Uh, I ended up in New York in the middle 20s in the advertising business, being paid more than I was worth and certainly more than was good for me. Uh, in the midst of that wonderful speakeasy period in New York City. And I still contend that that decade was the greatest ten years in the history of man. 
I had a perfectly marvelous time, and even though I became an alcoholic, I still look back on those drinking days with great fondness and many, many happy memories. But by the time the 30s started, I was beginning to be in trouble. But I didn't know it. Uh, I was in the advertising business, and I say being paid more than I was good for me, certainly. I was a boy genius. Uh, I had a mind that worked in a funny way. Uh, and because it worked in a funny way, I produced uh, words that they paid a great deal of money for. For instance, they assigned a laxative account to me, and uh, and this 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 uh, uh, medicine uh, was being advertised mostly by a headline that says "constipated?" question mark. And I twisted that around to say uh, "triggers lazy bowels." <laughs> and when your mind works like that, they pay you big money. And if your mind works like that, you're a sitting duck for alcoholism, too. And uh, that's what happened to me. Uh, at the end of, uh, I think it was 1932, uh, my immediate superior called me in at the end of the year when everybody was called in to uh, be patted on the back and possibly given a raise and more responsibility. And I'd done a good year's work that year. And I was surprised when this man... Uh, said he was taking some of the responsibility I already had away from me, and I was being given a token raise only with the rather grudging admission that I had indeed done a good year's work, but I was behaving my, myself in such a fashion that the partners in this advertising agency did not feel it was right to risk their clients' affairs to me. He didn't call me an alcoholic. I doubt if he knew the term. And he chose his words very carefully, trying to tell me what I should do. Uh, I chose to forget that this man was my friend as well as my employer, and I reacted in an entirely alcoholic fashion. I walked away and said, who in the hell does he think he is to tell me what to do with my private life and my private time? I'm sure that I'll surprise nobody in this room when I tell you that the following year, the same man called me in and said, we have to let X number of people go. And on the basis of performance, you should not be one of them. But we think there are people around here who deserve your job more than you, so you're fired. Uh, that was the gentle way I, was, I lost my first job as a result of alcoholism. Uh... I lost every job I ever had until I got AA by being fired. And I'm not going to bore you with a long list of hirings and firings, but uh, for a while the jobs were pretty good because uh, I had a reputation to deal on, and, and uh, uh, this same man was uh, willing to give me a good reference because he figured I'd learned my lesson and that I wasn't going to do that anymore. But I did do that anymore. I kept on doing that anymore. And uh, one by one, I got fired, and the jobs went down in grade. The intervals between them became wider, and the time I was able to keep them grew shorter. Until finally, in the advertising business in New York, I was marked completely lousy, 
And anyone who didn't know firsthand that I was totally unreliable, all they needed was one phone call, and they got the message. So then began a uh, series of any kind of jobs I could get, uh, some of them degrading, some of them degrading in a nice human way. For instance, there were people still in the advertising business who, who, uh, who were still fond of me and felt sorry for me. And they would call me in, and then we'd go through this little charade. He would say, Al, I got a job here that's right down your alley. There's nobody in New York can do it as well as you can. And we figured it'll take you about three weeks, and I got so much money in the budget here. Can you, uh, can you clear three weeks for us? And I'd pretend to think about that, and I'd say, yes, I can manage it. And uh, we'd make the deal. And then I'd start on the job, and it was about three days' work, really, because we both knew that this was a handout. But we'd go through this, this charade in order to preserve my dignity. And I got uh, a charity several times in that way. Well, when you begin operating that way, your self-esteem uh, begins to... Uh, get ragged around the edges. Uh, the old confidence begins to ebb, to say the least. And uh, finally, I was incapable of even doing those things, and plus the fact that nobody wanted to do them anymore. Uh, well, I'm not, again, not going to list a bunch of uh, menial tasks, but I can tell you and bring it to a grinding halt for you by telling you that the last job I was fired from was that of a dishwasher, 50 cents an hour. And I got fired from that one because I was, by this time, so nervous I couldn't stand in one place long enough to hold a 50 cent an hour dishwashing job. And I was fired by a little guy with greasy hair and bad teeth and wearing a leather jacket and who spoke pure Brooklynese. Get out of here, you bum! And I contrasted that to the nice, gentle way I'd been fired by Larry Meads that first time. A man sitting there, well-groomed in a $300 suit, uh, treating me as best he could. And somehow that picture of contrast in my mind uh, triggered surrender. And I said to myself, let's quit kidding me. I am what everybody's been saying I am, a drunken bum. And once I said that to myself, I felt a great sense of relief. I no longer had to pretend to anybody else, but more importantly, not even to myself. Now I was free to drink without any sense of duty or uh, regret or anything. Uh, I'm of a... Uh, theatrical turn of mind, so uh, uh, what would such a person do who just made that admission to himself standing in the middle of New York City? How can I dramatize this? Well, that was easy. I'll go over to the Bowery. So I went to the Bowery, and uh, uh, oh, I had a wonderful time. Uh, this is a dress rehearsal for what is to come. What kind of a world is it that does a thing like this to a highly strung genius like me? And I was wallowing in self-pity and having a perfectly wonderful time. Uh, 
My life, however, had been reduced to a very simple equation. It was a bed and a bottle, and I never got very far away from either. Uh, and it was in that condition and in that place that AA came into my life. Uh, apparently, I stepped off a bar stool into a phone booth and called my estranged wife. Incidentally, I should have told you that my uh, family life came apart right along paralleling my, my so-called career. And by this time, <clears throat> I'd been separated from my family for a second, and we were sure final time, legally. And uh, a judge had told me that I'd better not get in touch with my wife, but I did. I called her. And uh, she said that all I, what I said and all I said was, I am sick and I need help. Now, I didn't know I was sick, and I'd never asked for help, at least that kind of help. A few bucks, yes, but help, no. Uh, it was that phone call that brought AA into my life. My mother was living in Cleveland, and in the early of part of 1944, Cleveland was a, one of the real hotbeds of AA. There were probably more AAs in the Cleveland Akron area than there was anywhere else in the world. And Raleigh Hemsley had come in, and uh, there was a lot of to-do about the Rockefellers and all the rest of it in Cleveland. Uh, so my mother was remotely aware that there was something about alcoholism going on in that town. And oh, I should say that my, my wife called my mother and told her about this phone call, and she said it wasn't what he said so much, but there was something in his voice this time that makes me think this might be different. So that was all my mother needed, and she went up the street from where she lived on Crawford Avenue, any of you familiar with Cleveland, to a uh, big old house that had been converted into a funeral home, and behind it was an old-fashioned stone carriage house. And a lot of the Huff Avenue drunks were seen going into that barn in the back there, and uh, uh, there was all kinds of conjecture in the neighborhood about what went on back there. Uh, they probably went back there and held some kind of an orgy and got it out of their systems. But uh, whatever it was, it was decided civic improvement because none of these clowns were getting drunk and passing out on their lawns and their front porches. So with a mother's kind of courage, she went up and banged on the door and said, what goes on in the barn? And uh, they invited her in, and they told her what it was. It was an AA group, of course. And the guy she talked to was Clarence Snyder. And uh, they invited her to uh, tell them about me. And when they heard her version, they said, well, he sounds like he'll do. <laughs> and whatever he's done to you or at you, you owe him this one more chance. So they gave her a book to read and to bring East with her and uh, a phone number and a name to use in New York. This is all without my knowledge. So she hopped a train and, and came to New York and joined forces with my wife. And they called the number, which was then the old foundation. Today it would be the general service office. And my mother used the name, could she speak to Bill Wilson, please? When my mother asks for help, she doesn't fool around. She goes right to the top. But Bobby Berger, was, was, who was then the only 
office staff that we had said Bill was a little busy that day and she'd get somebody else for me, and she did. She got uh, an ex-Notre Dame football player named Dan Cunningham who weighed 247 pounds. And I weighed 138, believe it or not. I looked like death warmed over. And uh, this is all going on. I'm going about my business of a bottle and bed. And I'm coming back from a Saturday morning's drinking to go to bed. I'm very sleepy now. <laughs> and uh, I walk into the flea bag where I was in residence. And no lobby, just a landing. And in the landing stood my <laughs> my wife and my mother. And I said, oh, my God, I, I've got them again, you know. Uh, uh, uh. But they turned out to be real. Uh, and this scared me. And I reacted as I guess most alcoholics would. What are you doing here? Get out of my life. You're out of my life. I want you to stay out. So we started to have a scene, and, and uh, my mother yanked me off and off the street, and we went up to my cell. And uh, I said, I mean it. I want out of your life. I don't want you to bother with me at all. My bed is made. I want to lie in it. I said, what I ought to do is go out in the hall there and open that window and jump out. And she said the proper thing. She said, uh, let's not have any of that. You haven't got guts enough to jump out that window. You haven't courage enough to see this man from AA who's coming over to see. Incidentally, I said, I wanted no part of AA. Uh, why? What do you know about AA? I said, well, Mr. Rockefeller gave a dinner for them, and I read about it while I was out in Cleveland, and I want nothing to do with anything the Rockefellers have anything to do with. I'm still trying to figure out what the Rockefellers ever did to me, but uh, that's a sign of my alcoholic thinking. Uh, so I reacted to this, uh, you haven't got guts enough. I said, okay, this guy's down there, send him up. You know, the chairman of the board, let that salesman come in. Uh, but my sponsor was a cutie pie. I, I was going to duck, really. But he was standing out in the hall, and when my mother left, he stepped in. And he filled the doorway. He was a huge man. And the next thing I could do was uh, get rid of him, get rid of him, get rid of him as quickly as I could. Uh, it didn't take long, really, but I didn't get rid of him. He uh, didn't ask any of the questions I was expecting. He simply sat there on the bed and told me about himself. And I kept finding myself, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I thought that. Yeah, that same thing happened to me. And I liked the guy. And the combination of those two things was what did it. And he told me about this strange society he belonged to that had a, they had a club over on West 24th Street with a funny address. And then he told me how they ran these meetings, and that scared me to death because everybody got up and testified I said, oh, my God, they're the holy rollers, and I want no part of that. But I like the man. And uh, he says this whole thing took 20 minutes, and if it did, it was 20 minutes that literally turned my whole life around. We went downstairs and joined the ladies, and I conned mother out of five bucks. They take off, and now I'm wide awake again. So I go back to the gin mill. And... Uh, 
having five bucks in, an extra five bucks in my pocket, I now go for the good stuff, the 15-cent whiskey. And that seems incredible. That's true. Fifteen cents, two for a quarter in, in the places I was drinking. Uh, and I got tried to remember what this man had said, and I couldn't. My mind literally would not retain anything for ten consecutive seconds. But I couldn't get away from the impact the man himself had had on me. And I came to a decision. By God, I'm going to that meeting with him tomorrow night. And I looked down. I was drinking little short highballs. And I looked down, and here was half of a drink, two swallows. And I'd taken the first swallow. And impulsively, I started to belt that down. I said, no, wait a minute. Here's here the, the theatrical bet. See? It's my last drink. It'll be a half a drink. I'll let a half a drink on the bar. Well, when you come to a decision like that, you need witnesses. <laughs> so I called the bartender over. This is a little Spanish bar, by the way. And the bartender had the very picturesque name of Pacifico. I said, Pacifico, behold, this is my last drink, this half drink. Mark the time on the clock and the date on the calendar. You are a witness to a great moment in history. It's my last drink. And then I figuratively pulled my cloak up over my nose and made an exit. And I got to the door, and Pacifico said, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Every bartender's heard that one a thousand times. But much to his surprise, and I must admit, my own, that was my last drink. And that was a long, long time ago. Uh, and I did go to that meeting the next day, next night, and began the process of turning my life around, or having it turned around for me. Uh, after that first meeting, which I didn't understand at all, I identified with all the drunkologues. But then they started talking a language that I hadn't learned yet, the steps, the program, and all the, the familiar terms of AA that I didn't know about yet. And I didn't know what was going on, really, because my mind I was scared, I was sick, I was, I was everything. And uh, I looked around at the faces, and I got scared to death, because whatever it was was going on there, they were in dead earnest about it. They were all sitting there with rapt attention, and I figured whatever it was they were doing, they were going to ask me to do it too. And this is what scared me. Because I was pretty sure I couldn't do it. And I didn't need any more failures. I did not want to be drawn back into the stream of life. I did not want to have to compete again. I wanted out. I wanted to stay out. My game plan was very simple. Just no pain and I just hope I don't wake up someone. And now here were these strangers... Uh, about to challenge me, and I sensed that that's what they were going to do. And I didn't want to play. But uh, after the meeting, my sponsor collected a few of these guys, and they took me over to a steward's cafeteria. Uh, that's the same cafeteria I'd been fired from as a dishwasher, not the same unit, but the same chain. And uh, we sat at one of those typical cafeteria tables, and they said some remarkable things to me. They said, you're important to us. A hell of a big thing to say to a guy in the shape I was in. I hadn't been important to anybody for years. So uh, I kind of registered that one. And then they said, tell us about yourself. And I did. And I really, 
let them have it. I had the violins playing Hearts and Flowers in the background, and uh, I explained away everything. All the SOBs in my life, and the bad breaks, and the uh, uh, unfortunate relationships, and bad timing, I explained all right down to the last detail why a nice, decent guy like me should be in a place like this. Uh, they all listened with their chins in their hands. I said, my God, I'm really getting through to this bunch. <laughs> well, I didn't know that anybody around that table could have stopped me at any point and finished my story for me. Because I was telling the typical alcoholic's tale of self-justification. And they had done it. And they understood my desperate need to tell it and to reach out for a little identification, if you will. And when I finished, they all uh, owed and odd in the right places and uh, uh, said, yeah, pretty sad tale of woe, but not the worst. We don't know who to pin the blue ribbon on around here, but bad enough. However, you will find, if you hang around here, that that experience will be very useful because it equips you to be able to communicate with the next guy who needs help. And you couldn't do it unless you'd been through that experience. Wow! Now I'm important to somebody, and now I'm about to become useful. Big stuff. I hadn't been useful either for a long time, and I knew it. So uh, I started my AA career, if you will. And my sponsor was a very active 12-step operator in these days, and I, I was his Dr. Watson. I went along with him. His and there was a lot to do. There was a relative uh, big flow of inquiries and a relatively few people to handle them. So there was always a lot, lot to do. And we were putting them in and taking them out of Bellevue Hospital every hour on the hour, it seems to me. And Dan was doing 12-step work, but I was being useful. I was saving souls, no less. Furthermore, I was keeping score. I could have told you at any given moment precisely how many souls I had saved up to the moment you asked me. <laughs> that was my childish notion of being useful. Uh, but they let me do it. And then came the day when I got my first pigeon all by myself, quite by accident. By this time, the funds had been, my mother had been sending me money. Uh, that was the money I'd been living on down on the Bowery. And these AA people, without my knowing, told her to cut that out, not to support me at all, leave me completely on my own. If I'd known that, I think I would have resigned on the spot. <laughs> so I was sleeping wherever I could. For a while, I slept in my sponsor's hall bedroom after he got up and went to work. And then the landlady said, uh, none of that, so I couldn't do that. So I was sleeping wherever I could, in bowling alleys or anything that was open at night and was reasonably warm. And then I'd get down to the club every morning when it opened, and they let me lie down on a big wicker divan upstairs until the place began to fill up. And I was uh, laid out one morning. Uh, oh, incidentally, I went down there every morning religiously to, to, to be there, when my sponsor called at 11 or 10.30, he had drunk up a family business in New York, a very prosperous one, and was now working in a J.C. Penney warehouse for $29 and something take-home pay. 
out of which he was feeding me. And at, he got his coffee break at 10.30, and he would call me. And uh, what he'd say was, hang in there, kid, and I'll see you at 5.30, and we'll have dinner. Now, there's nothing very spiritual about that, but this was, a, this was an important moment. That connection with this man was, it was, it was almost the highlight of my day, the reassurance. And it's, uh, I think you understand what, it, what I'm saying. So uh, it was a big moment. Well, anyhow, I was, I was there one morning when Isla Phillips, who was on the phone, came up and said, there's a guy up in the Times Square Hotel from Chicago, a musician, and he's been calling up all week, and uh, we sent some people up earlier, and all he wanted was Chica uh, car fare back to Chicago. But he, he, he called up again this morning, and he, he sounds desperate. Do you want to go help him? I said, sure, here's another soul to save. And she gave me a buck, I think, and I got on my white horse, and I went up 8th Avenue, and uh, found my boy in the Piccadilly Hotel, I think it was. Very famous jazz musician, Muggsy Spanier, in case any of you know anything about Chicago jazz. Probably the greatest cornet jazz player in, in the history of jazz. And uh, he had come to New York to open at Nick's down in the village and fell flat on his face the minute he walked in the door and got kicked out. So he'd hold up in the hotel and had drunk up all his money and was at that awful stage of uh, hangover where he was scared. I have seen a lot of alcoholics in beds since then. But honestly, to this day, I never saw anybody as sick or as frightened as poor little Muggsy was. Uh, the best day he ever lived, he looked like a little Spanish or a little uh, frightened cocker spaniel. So when you get that guy in that condition, he, he, he looked awful. He was the most tragic figure I think I've ever seen. And uh, he wouldn't, I couldn't get him out of that room. I stayed in that room with him for three days and three nights, going out to get soup and, or whatever we could get down him. And then uh, Sunday morning, we finally got him to have enough courage to get up and get dressed. And he was hanging, oh God, don't leave me, hanging on to me for dear life. So much so that when we got into the subway, he, he, he made me get in the same slot of the turnstile with him. He was afraid we were going to get separated. Really, it was pathetic. And we got down to the club, and I turned him over to my sponsor and some other people. And then I got on the subway to go out to Long Island to have Sunday dinner with my still estranged wife and children. Every three or four weeks during this period, she would invite me out for Sunday dinner, uh, I guess to check the progress, or maybe to keep the, keep the franchise open, I don't know. But uh, anyhow, this was one of those Sundays, and on the way out, I got thinking about this soul saving. And there was something different about this. My own pigeon. And uh, hanging on to me. And I got, you know, hey, this guy's dependent upon me. Then I got thinking, what am I talking about? I'm just as dependent on Dan over here. I'm holding on to him for dear life. Uh, and all of a sudden, I understood what that meant. All of us occasionally have these moments of great, tremendous, brilliant understanding of something very profound. 
This was one of those moments. In my mind's eye, I saw the three of us. Muggsy, me, and Dan. Me in the middle. Both dependent and dependent upon. And I said to myself, holy cow, I am linked to my fellow man for the first time in my life. I understood what that meant. And I got thinking about it, and don't misunderstand, I wasn't a bad guy at all. I'd just never gotten involved with life deep enough to understand or have any idea at all about my relationship to other people. I had grown up in a very sophisticated world. Madison Avenue, hell, if anybody thought they knew how to live, it was us, you know, consorting with so-called uh, celebrities most of the time, with uh, unlimited expense accounts in 21 and uh, a store club and fancy eating joints like that. Sure, we know how to live. It took me a long time to unlearn what I thought I knew. And to begin to understand, I don't know the first damn thing about living. Or have any notion at all why I was here. Until little things like this began to happen to me because I did what these AA people told me to do. Let me stop here a minute and give you a, 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 a conviction of mine. That AA will teach you nothing. It will not teach you how to be sober, but will give you the opportunity to learn everything you will ever need to learn. So uh, don't, please, sit around and wait for AA to rub off. You may be sitting there the rest of your life waiting to be abraded. Uh, this is a program of doing, and in the doing, you learn. The ancient Chinese already knew this long before we had a so-called Western civilization. They had an adage that said, uh, I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. That's the formula for AA doesn't do you a damn bit of good to understand intellectually what we're doing here. But when you go do it, then you learn the message. It's very difficult to teach somebody something he thinks he already knows. <laughs> and in our case, it's perhaps even more difficult to teach somebody something he's afraid to know. <laughs> But Harry Truman said something that, that fits here. He says, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. <laughs> Implied in that is a willingness to change, your willingness to admit you don't know it all. Surrender. The more completely and the quicker you can surrender, the quicker you start on the kind of recovery that... Uh, we know about here in AA. Uh, you can kid yourself about surrender. You can comply. You can do everything that everybody says in AA and still not surrender. Go to seven meetings a week. So you go to seven meetings a week. See, I'm doing everything they say. But if your heart isn't in it and you're going simply to comply with somebody's concept so that you've got an excuse next time you get drunk, 
you're not working this program at all. You're merely using it. Uh, so don't, quit kidding yourself. Don't, don't just comply. Try to surrender. It's tough. Not easy. Uh, I got kidded into this program. This sponsor of mine, God bless him, uh, he was just right for me. He, uh, he listened to me for those first few days, and he says, you're screwier than I am. <laughs> He'd only been sober, incidentally, six weeks uh, when he came to fetch me, and I was his first pigeon, so he wasn't about to let go of me. Uh, he said, you're, you're crazier than I am. Let you and I make a deal. I said, what? He said, let me do your thinking for you. I'm not much better than you are, but I am better. And I said, okay. And that, we thought it was a gag, but afterwards I thought, gee, I, may, I'm, I would let this guy do my, my thinking for me. That sounds silly and trivial, but it just may have been the first time in my whole life that I was truly trusting somebody. I was brought up like most Americans were. Stand on your own two feet. The self-made man was the hero of my youth. From what I know now, the very last thing in this world I ever want to be is a self-made man standing alone. Holy cow. I want to be a link, both dependent and dependent upon. Uh, my sponsor knew me pretty well. I was a barroom atheist, intellectual. He was a, obviously a good Catholic. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. <laughs> and uh, uh, I was screaming about let off, lay off his God stuff. And I was doing all kinds of arguing with him. Intellectual. I want him to, to understand what, a, uh, what a, a, a brain I was. And he said, look, cut out this argument. You're not listening. We got a 24-hour plan here. He said, it's now, whatever the time was on his watch. And he said, uh, you're not going to have a drink or even think about a drink until tomorrow at this time. If you want a drink at that hour tomorrow, I'll buy it for you. But for the next 24 hours, it's out of the way, and you're going to listen. So I said, come on, let's not have any of this kid stuff. If you're going to do this, let's do it for the rest of your life, not just one day at a time. Now, instead of arguing the, 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 the value and the philosophy of the 24-hour plan, he kidded me. He thought about it a minute. He said, okay, for you, we'll change it. I said, okay, what is it now? He says, for you, it's a 23-hour plan with an hour off for lunch. Uh, so he kidded me into doing the right thing. And then we, we continued to argue about this God business, and I said, I want to know part of that third step. And he said, okay, I'll rewrite it for you. I said, how's it go now? He says, it now reads that you will make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as he understands you. 
So, okay, I borrow my friend's Catholic God, and away we go. I am no longer arguing. Uh, we have a theme in our little group down in Florida that when a guy gets uh, too argumentative like that in the early stages, we give him the text for the day. And the text for the day is, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make ye mattered in hell. <laughs> Anyhow, here I am in this AA thing, floundering around, trying to find some way. I was fascinated by these people, uh, and I was intrigued by the meetings, but I didn't believe I could do it. Uh, there's a great deal of mystique about uh, 90 days. I think Holly last night was talking about uh, three months. Uh, that seemed to be some special uh, time. So I began to make a three-month plan. I said, this is very nice, and I'm doing all right for the time being. Uh, but at the end of three months, something will have happened to me, and I'll get drunk for a week. Then I'll come back and do another three-month stretch, get drunk for a week. That's four winged things a year, and this to me made sense. I can, get, I can get my job back, I can start a career, I can probably get my family back on that basis. Because that's, that's systematic. That's how little I knew about alcoholism. But at the end of three months, I was so involved with people whom I was, uh, whose souls I was saving that I said, now wait a minute, I can't get drunk now, let all this, these people down. So I revised the plan to six months. And I said, I'll, I'll get these people on their feet and I won't take on any new clients. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I'll start this new plan at six months. But before I got to the six month, I had had enough sobriety one day at a time to begin to believe that maybe I could do it. And then I got frightened because I'd been holding on to a little uh, ouch. First meeting I went to, they said this was a disease. I said, oh, that's great. Not only does that explain, give me a ready explanation of what's happened to me, but it's a ready-made excuse in the future anytime I want to get drunk and anybody says anything to me, what do you expect from me? I'm a sick man. I just had a little relapse. Thing. So I went to my sponsor, and he took me to his sponsor. Well, they were Ernest McKenzie, and, and uh, Mac understood my problem. And uh, he said, yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll settle that one for you. So he took me over to Bellevue. Mac, incidentally, was a, a sugar broker, and he was uh, pretty well off, and he was one of these playboy drunks who had... Uh, he knew every drying out place, country club type of drying out place in the whole eastern part of the United States. He knew doctors. He knew everybody. He was an expert on alcoholism. The only difficulty was he couldn't stay sober himself. But he was a great, great help to a lot of people, including me. So he took me to a friend of his over at uh, Bellevue, a, an internist. And he said, this young man wants to know about his disease of alcoholism. So the doctor had been clued, I guess. Anyhow, he explained it in lay terms so that I could understand it. 
And I got outside and I said, thank you, Mac. I, I understand now why I'm different inside. I couldn't see that it helped much, but at least I understood it. So he uh, said, we're not through yet. And a few days later, he took me back to Bellevue again, only this time we saw a psychiatrist friend of his. And the same thing. Explained to this young man uh, what's wrong with him. And the psychiatrist said, in effect, that the internist didn't know what the hell he was talking about, that this was a mental disease, and the uh, treatment was mental. Truly. So I got outside, and Max said, I know you're confused. Don't worry about it. we still got another guy to see. And the war was still on, and gasoline was rationed, and he used his precious gasoline coupons to drive me over to Montclair, New Jersey where he took me to see his old family doctor, an old general practitioner, retired. And he went to all this trouble because he was sure he knew what this old man was going to say. So we got to see the old, old boy, and he told him what had happened, what these other two doctors had said. And he said, those two young whippersnappers don't know what the hell they're talking about. It's no disease at all, purely a matter of willpower. So we get outside, and Max said, hold it. You have now heard three scientific opinions about what's wrong with you. Now, I'm going to give you a very unscientific opinion that I hope to God will last you the rest of your life. It doesn't make any difference whether it's physical or mental or neither or both. Whatever it is, you got it. to admit to that and he says okay here comes the here comes the unscientific advice you have a disease which if you don't take the first drink will never bother you so your problem is not now never was and never will be one of medical research your problem is how do you learn to live your life without wanting to take that first drink and you got it made now he could have given me that little speech the day I asked the question but he understood how alcoholics act and how alcoholics learn. By putting me through the whole process, he fixed it in my mind by doing, making me do something so that uh, I understood. The advice has sufficed up to now. This is the way we learn. This is the way we change. Uh, they let me speak in AA for a while, and I used to, oh, you know, the, 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 the theatrical in me. I would tell them I came into AA off the Bowery. I'd been on the Bowery about three weeks. And playing at it, you know, sleeping off, really, and then going during the daytime and having all this wonderful reveling and self-pity. And most of the guys around 24th Street in those days were really off the Bowery. And... They listened to this hogwash a few times, and then one of them came up and put his arm around my shoulder and said, to, uh, Look, Sonny Boy, don't tell these guys that you were on, came in off the Bowery. If you were on the Bowery, it was strictly on an outpatient basis. <laughs> and uh, so you can't fool anybody in AA. And you're a sucker to try to play their game because they invented the game. Uh, the process of growing up is very slow, 
and at times painful. I think it was uh, Donna who talked about pain and its uses. Uh, nothing much happens without pain. You wouldn't be here until you hurt enough. Uh, if life went on without ups and downs, we'd be a bunch of cows chewing on our cuts. And life would be so boring that we'd have to start all over again and get drunk. But it is the pain and the disappointments and the setbacks in life that, that uh, livened it up and make it truly useful. Life, I mean. The uh, ancient Greeks said that anything good is never constant. Sleep, riches, peace, to be properly appreciated must be interrupted. Yet we, in our childlike way, thought that everybody, everything had to be perfect all the time. And that's what we thought we were looking for. That's the reason so many AAs in their emotional immaturity will start out and get on that pink cloud. Then when the first disappointment comes along, say, oh, this isn't going to work either, and quit the whole thing. This almost happened to me. I was going along fine. Some stupid guy came along and put me to work. Uh, my, my wife was making noises like she might have me back. And the usual nice things that happened to almost everybody and they were happening to me. And then some minor thing came along that uh, wasn't to my liking. And I started whining about it. And my sponsor pushed me back in the chair and said, sit down, you stupid SOB. And count your blessings. And if you won't do it, I'll do it for you. And he started ticking off the things that he knew had happened to me. Or I might have gone over the side that day. Thank God for a good sponsor. Uh, the learning process for me has been continuous. It's still going on. Uh, my wife did take me back. And uh, she couldn't have been of more help. She pitched in. She went to AA meetings with me. And we come back, and she very often would explain to me what the speakers had said. Uh, <laughs> took me a long time for my mind, really, to clear up. And she was fine, but our two daughters weren't having any. They were not impressed with the fact that the old man was not lying around drunk all the time. And they uh, ignored me as best they could. And I got sick of this. I wanted them to be patting me on the back and, and uh, realizing what a heroic figure I was in the home. And I went to a guy in AA who had something going for him, uh, an inner peace, a kind of uh, very quiet wisdom that everybody noticed. And I went to Charlie and I explained about these children of mine. And I got the good AA answer. He said, uh, Al, I'm not wise enough, and I don't know anybody around here who is wise enough to tell you what to do about your relationships with your children. 
Now, you've been doing a lot of griping about this God business, but there's only one place I know to send you for that kind of wisdom, and that's down on your knees. So I left Charlie, uh, disappointed at first, but I thought about it. And uh, the point is that I had been brought along. I had been willing to accept little pieces of advice. For instance, the very first one I remember, what do I do when I feel a drink coming on? Get a Hershey bar and chew on it. Again, that's not a sermon either, but uh, I thought, you know, silly. But I tried it because I trusted the guy who told me, and it worked. And I'd done several little things like that, and they brought me up to where when Charlie said, pray, okay, I'll try that. So I went home, and I locked the door, because I didn't want anybody to catch me at this. And uh, uh, I felt as big as an elephant, very self-conscious. I got down on my knees, and I uttered a very self-conscious prayer. Dear God, make these kids straighten up and fly right. And in my own childishness, I was expecting an answer the next morning, and there wasn't any. Now, who was I praying to? I had no idea of God at all. I'm still an atheist. I was praying to Charlie Hicks. I trusted him. And the God I have now come to understand will say, that's all right. That was as much as I was capable of having faith in at that moment. So it works just as well as if you have the clearest impression of God in this world. But there was no answer to the prayer. And I forgot the whole thing. Prayer, incident, everything. Two years, more than two years went by, and by this time my older daughter is getting ready to graduate from high school, and she's in her chemistry class one day, and they're talking about alcohol as a chemical element, and get to the beverage and what it did to some people, and the teacher said, some miscalculated words about Alcoholics Anonymous. Whereupon my daughter held up her little hot hand and was called upon, and she stood up and said, My father's an alcoholic, and he belongs to Alcoholics Anonymous, and what you said about it isn't quite right. And she told him how it worked. And then, in the next breath, she realized what she had done. She had broken my anonymity at the public level, no less. Uh... And she told her mother, and her mother said, Well, you tell your father the minute he comes in. So the poor kid was waiting for me just inside the door and uh, standing ready to run and sort of talking to me over her shoulder. But she told me what she'd done in a great rush of words, and my first impulse was to belt her one. Uh, but there came the realization of what really had happened that my daughter felt free to stand up among her own friends and say, my father's an alcoholic with no sense of shame and more understanding, really, than I had. This was information she'd overheard in AA conversations in our home when I thought she wasn't paying any attention at all. And once that thought went through my mind, that moment began a relationship with that daughter and later with her younger sister that goes deeper more meaningful and is more is finer than we ever would have had had we been a so-called normal family. This is a family disease. And if anybody doubts that, they should have heard Elsa last night and that dear little Vicky yesterday morning. And the family who goes through this together and comes out safely 
as we have, has gone through a tempering process. You come out of it better, stronger people. We not only love each other, we respect each other. And there can be a great difference. Uh, my wife is dead now, but my two children are middle-aged ladies now. And uh, they're adults to a degree that I will never be. They're fine mothers. They're fine wives. They're important members of their community. They're worthwhile people. I'm so proud of them I could burst. The credit belongs entirely to A. After that, when I began to feel guilty about them, again I went to Charlie. I said, Charlie, I, I, I've been trying to make it up to these kids, and uh, I, I, I want to earn a lot of money so that I can give them security. And I'm not doing so well on the, on the money front. And by this time, this is several years after the prayer bit, Charlie knew these kids pretty well. And he said, uh, you're stupider than I thought. He says, can't you see that your children have already been given a heritage far more precious than any you would ever be able to earn for them? Charlie was right. That's bedrock AA. That's the kind of communication in depth that you can find here if you look for it. So don't wait for it to rub off. I continued to be uh, an intellectual around that 24th Street Club. I bucked at every one of these steps. I found something wrong with all of them. The book was badly written. Uh, and I said that if I, if I stayed around that I would uh, rewrite it for them. And I would certainly condense these steps because they were repetitive and a good copywriter would never do that. Uh, and also, I uh, would start an elocution class so these guys who spoke could uh, do a little better. And I'd show them how to construct their meetings so that they were properly balanced. And I was going to put all this in a kit so you clowns out here in Kentucky could, could uh, share in this too. And they, uh, they patted me on the back and said, you do that, Al. It's great. Well, the book hasn't been touched, thank God. The steps are still as they were, and they're still letting anybody speak in AA. And that's fine. I was telling somebody yesterday, speaking of letting anybody speak in AA, one of the greatest moments I will ever remember in my whole life was the Manhasset group out in Long Island, the kind of a uh, high-bottom uh, uh, suburban group. Uh, and in its membership were a couple of potato farmers, uh, one big raw-boned guy who I doubt very much had gone past the third grade. But everybody was very fond of him. And they told him that he'd been around long enough now he ought to speak at a meeting. So they gave him a date, and he, uh, he had enough lead time so that he uh, <coughs> wrote his speech out and memorized it. And he was scared to death. He got up in front of that thing, and he stood there like a zombie. And in this monotone voice, it all came, my name is, well, I've forgotten what it was now, whatever it was. And it all came out in this monotone. And when he finished, he waited a second, and he started right in the beginning again. My name is so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. 
Everybody in that room sensed what had happened. Nobody moved. They listened to that story the second time through. I have never been in a room in my life where there was so much obvious love as there was in that room that night. And when this boy finished this thing, I don't think he ever knew that he'd repeated it. They gave him a standing ovation, which is pretty rare at an ordinary AA meeting. Those are the kind of things that will teach you something. But you've got to be at the track to collect. You can't phone in your AA membership. Speaking of uh, Vicky, you're talking about uh, crawly things. I have a friend in, in New Hope, New, New Jersey, who uh, uh, got his AA out in Los Angeles. And before he got sober, he was falling down drunk this night, and he, he's trying to get across Wilshire Boulevard, uh, and he couldn't stand on his feet, so he started to crawl across. And, of course, he was picked up, and they took him down to the station, and he was they are going to book him for jaywalking, and he said he wasn't walking. <laughs> <laughs> so it's on the books in the California police, uh, in the Los Angeles police, that he was arrested for jay-crawling. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, I'm bucking all this stuff, and these people are... are uh, pushing me into trying these things. Never mind that crap. Try this. Uh, I was complaining about all my SOBs, the people that lost, lost me up. Uh, this guy fired me. This guy wouldn't let me have the 500 at a critical moment. This guy let me down here. This guy let me down there. And uh, they got sick of hearing these about these guys, and they knew them all by their first names by this time. And he said, we think it's time that you went back and did steps eight and nine. And my reaction to that was very childish, very alcoholic. Why should I give those SOBs the satisfaction of seeing me grovel? Oh, I'm sorry for what I did, but I'm not sorry. Then I got the AA answer. We're not interested in them. We're interested in you, pal. I said, wait a minute. Run that one past me again. What do you mean? He said, well, let's take old Jules. Jules was the man I'd complained about the most. He was a former employer who'd fired me three times. That's alcoholic thinking. I chose to forget that in order to fire me three times, he had to rehire me twice. <laughs> All I remembered was that he fired me not once, but three times. So he was the guy I talked about most, and he was the guy that, that, that they, they used for an example. He says, how long has it been since you've seen old Jules? And I said, I haven't seen old Jules since the last time he fired me. This is so-and-so. Uh, does he know where you are? No. Does he care where you are? No. So you're not bothering him at all, but you're carrying him around in your back like an albatross, and we want him off. So we don't care about Jules, we're interested in you. So now they appeal to my boy's boyish vanity, and I'm the star of the show, and I'll go back and get those so-and-sos off my back. Again, I did the right thing for all the wrong reasons. I made a list. By this time, I was working 
in a little advertising agency, and I went and got a big, the biggest pad that the art department had, drawing, uh, sketch pad. And I made a list, and I filled it. And I showed it to my wife. I said, see if there's anybody I've left off. And much to my amazement, she said, there's one name I don't see here. And I, with pencil poised, I said, who's that? And she said, you. As I understand this, you're going back to these people to make amends, and I think you have to first forgive yourself before you can do that. So it's from my own wife that I began to comprehend about this business of uh, self-forgiveness. And I found out how hard it was to do. I had to keep doing it every five minutes. I'd do it, and then I'd think of something else, oh, my God, and then I'd forgive myself again. So finally I got to uh, this list, and instead of, you know, picking on number 43 or something like that, oh, no, nah, let's get old number one up here. So I called Jules, and he didn't want to see me, but I persisted, and he finally said, all right, come in next Wednesday at 2 o'clock or whatever. And I was all right up until 2 o'clock next Wednesday, and then I got scared as, you know what. And I got into his office, and he told me later he had five bucks in this pocket and ten bucks in this one, and depending upon the quality of the pitch he was expecting, would determine... <laughs> so you can see my nuisance value was ten bucks tops. But I fooled him. I told him that I had joined AA, that I'd been sober, whatever the time was, and that I was here to make amends. Now, he'd fired me that last time for the loss of the Thomas A. Edison Industries account, about a million and a quarter dollars worth of advertising billing, commissions all around 200000 and a prestigious name to have on your client list, obviously. Uh, he told me, get out of his office, get out of the building if necessary, get out of the country. He never wanted to see me again. Uh, I said, I haven't got a million dollars worth of advertising on me, but I'm here to tell you that someday, some way, I want to make it up. Well, you know, this is a man now that I had spent several years hating, using precious energy and all my fluids and everything else, hating this man. A few times when I'd see him, he'd see me coming, he'd get to the other side of the street or the other side of the sidewalk. Do you know what this so-and-so did when I told him why I was there? He got up and walked around the desk and put his arms around me. And said, Al, this is the greatest thing I've heard in a long time. There are a lot of people around here who felt very sorry for what you were doing to yourself. What can I do to help? Now, if it stopped right there, that would have been quite a thing. But it didn't. About a month later, a guy ran a little agency called me up and he said, I understand you're looking for a job. I said, yeah. He said, come in and talk to me. So I did and... Uh, the easiest job I ever got in my life. We talked very casually a little bit and uh, got a little idea of some of the things I'd done in the past. He said, come to work on Monday morning. Get a pretty reasonable salary. And uh, what I didn't know was that Jules had called this guy up. He said, I understand you're looking for a good creative man. Well, here's a good one. But when you check him out, you'll find he has a bad drinking problem. However, he was in my office. He's joined AA. And he's been sober, whatever the time is. And I think he's a good risk, good gamble. So I got the job anonymously. And Jules called me up after I've been working a couple of days and to, ostensibly to uh, congratulate me on being back in the business. 
And then towards the end, he said very casually, oh, by the way, where could I take a friend of mine to that club you belong to? And I told him where he could take his friend to an AA meeting in Manhattan that night. The cop on the beat could have probably given him the same information. No further communications between Jules and me for, oh, some little time. year, maybe as much as two years. And by now, he's a real big shot on Madison Avenue. He called me up out of the blue one day, and he said, could you have lunch with me today? And I said, I've got a date, but it's not important. I can break it. Yes. So I met him for lunch, and he took me to the Union League Club, no less, and we had a very elegant lunch. And uh, when we finished, he said, I expect you're curious about why I called you today. I said, yes, I am. He said, well, last night, the closest thing I have to a blood brother, my college roommate, man I dearly love, uh, showed up in my house in more trouble than I knew anybody could get into, roaring, drunk, ready to fight me or anybody else who crossed him. He had uh, absconded over a period of time with a considerable sum of money from his firm, which had, had once been a family firm but was now a public corporation. The law was after him. The bonding company was after him. He didn't know where to go. The only place he could think of to go was my house. And I sat on his chest, and I called Intergroup, and they sent up a sponsor, and they took him off to Knickerbocker Hospital, where he is right now. I said, wait, hold the phone. How did you know about Intergroup and Knickerbocker and sponsors and words like that? He said, well, that's the thing. So since I have last saw you, I have been instrumental in pushing 12 people into AA. And among them were some very dear friends and some close business associates, including some of our clients. And I didn't think much about that, really, except it was a nice thing to be able to do. Until uh, this thing struck so close to home last night. And I was so grateful for knowing exactly what to do and how to do it that my mind went back to that stupid day when you came into my office with that stupid story about making amends for the loss of the Edison business. So I called you for lunch today to tell you that instead of you being in my debt, I am very much in yours. Because it must be obvious to anybody that 12 human lives, and now I pray God 13, are worth a great deal more than the million dollars worth of advertising, or for that matter, the whole damn advertising profession. Uh, how do you put a price tag on a thing like that? And where else can you have an experience like that? You stay in the continuity of AA and things link up. For instance, that first prayer about my children and my daughter standing up in her chemistry class. I was able to see that that was the answer to that prayer two years before. And I could understand why. I wasn't qualified for an answer to that prayer the next morning. But two years later, when AA had forced me to grow up a little bit, I was qualified, and I got the answer. And I began to understand how this thing works. So it was with Jules. Uh, I went to uh, anti-Semitic, now I'm going to be. I had a Jewish landlord, a very famous, actually, uh, Fifth Avenue lawyer who owned a lot of property out in Long Island. We lived in one of his houses. And we owed him some back rent. And uh, in the arguing about it, I got so obnoxious 
that he got into the act. Ordinarily, he, he operated through agents. And uh, he called me himself on the phone, and I was very obnoxious to him over the phone. And he showed up, and he offered to come through a locked door and beat me up. And he was a big man. He could have done it. And he ended up by throwing my furniture out in the street. I got him that mad. So he became my Jew bastard. And I went to him because these guys told me to. I trusted these people. So I said, I'm here to pay that back rent. He said, what? And I told him why. I'm in AA. I'm an alcoholic. It's necessary for me to do things like this. Oh, that was wrong. What was wrong with you? I wondered. Guy with a nice little family like you had, I couldn't figure it out. So that's what it is. Yeah. He said, now that I know that, I know I'm not your only creditor. I said, right. Uh, he said, I'd like to help you make this thing work. That's what my Jew bastard said. So I'll tell you what you do. You make a list of your creditors, how much you owe them, and give it to me. And when they get in touch with me, refer them to me, and I'll try to keep them off your back and keep you out of the court so that this will work. So I gave him a list, and the first one was about $5,000 with I don't know how many names on it. It eventually got up to around 11 when they found me or I remembered a little better. And uh, uh, this was all right, except that at that moment I was working, for, I was carrying bundles for an art service, 55 bucks a week. And he didn't ask me how much I was making. He said, you're working? I said, yes. He didn't ask me how much I was making. And he said, well, send what you can of your salary. And I said, I'll send you 10%. He said, okay, whatever it is. And uh, I'll keep it here and spread it around among these guys as they get in touch with it. <laughs> so the first week I sent him over in an envelope, a $5 bill and a 50-cent piece. And he told me later he didn't realize what he got himself into <laughs> until he looked at this dough in his hands, and then he had an absolute inspiration. On the list of creditors was, was a, a firm that he had done a lot of work for, and they were located directly across Fifth Avenue from his office. So just on an impulse, he put his hat on, he went across the street, he said, I want to see Mr. So-and-so, who was the controller of this company. And he got this big shot, and he explained what had happened. One of his ex-tenants had come in with this unlikely story, and here's the list, and he owes you, I don't know what it was, $200, and, and, and here's it. How much of it do you want? This man thought for a minute, and thank God he had a sense of humor. He reached over and he says, I'll take 50 cents. <laughs> Mr. Rosenberg goes back to his office, and he's got something now. Uh, he tried this out on a number of people and told them a story you know, about this first this 50 cents. And one guy said, okay, send me a buck. And uh, some didn't play, of course, but uh, uh, then I got this better job, and uh, I arranged with the accounting department to send more than 10% of a much bigger salary, and I never missed a penny of this money, and just kept going over to him, and oh, occasionally we'd have a phone conversation, but uh, 
not much contact. Then one day he called me. He says, on your way to lunch, stop in. I want to see you. So uh, I did. And as I came in the door, he took a piece of paper and lit it, let it fall burning into a big brass ashtray. And he said, my boy, you're out of debt. This happened to be on a Thursday. I know it was a Thursday because it was my Flushing group meeting night. And I went out to the group that night, and my dear friend Frank Lynch, one of the really great colorful AAs, not the Washington one, the Long Island one. And I told Frank about this experience. And Frank thought for a minute, he says, that may not be a spiritual experience, but it'll damn well do till one comes along. <laughs> uh, there's more to this, too. Uh, several years later, after the, I'm all out of debt now, uh, I'd gone down Fifth Avenue to lunch one day, and I see his secretary in this mass of people. And we stopped and chatted for a few minutes. And in the course of the conversation, she dropped something, and she thought I already knew that Mr. Rosenberg never did get the back rent I went in there to pay him. This Jew bastard. Uh, so we're right in his block. So I went upstairs, and he happened to be in. And I said, I just met Helen on the street, and she told me you never did get the back rent. I came in there to pay you. And he pushed me down in the chair, too, a big leather divan. He says, you're, you're not nearly as bright as I thought you were. He says, don't you realize that you and I went through this thing together, and the question is, who got the greater benefit out of it? I rather think I did. Furthermore, you and I gave four or five credit managers, those who went along with this thing, more fun than they've had in the collection of debts in their whole <laughs> career. And something I never did tell you, that some of these guys went along for a while and then sent me a receipted bill paid in full. You had about $3,000 of your indebtedness excuse. Now, how do you put a price tag on a thing? How do you evaluate it? How can you not have things like that happen to you and not change? And where else but in the continuity of AA could you have things like that come up in your life? All you need to do is follow directions. Old AA saying, when all else fails, follow directions. That's all we do. Just do what this program asks us to do. And it works out. Uh, all we have to do is get the hell out of our own way and then learn how to stay out of our own way. And life takes care of itself. In fact, I've got a, a, I ran across a very apt description of life. Life is what happens while you and I were making other plans. <laughs> True. This thing is so simple that you're apt to miss it if you're not careful. Dr. Bob said, keep it simple. And the longer I am in this program, the simpler it becomes. And the simpler it becomes, the less I understand it. Because I recognize that I am face to face with a simplicity that goes beyond human comprehension. And I am face to face with God Almighty. Thank you.